0: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February twenty second, two 2022. On this week's show, Slate's Justin Peters will join us for a valedictory to the wondrous and horrific spectacle of the olympics we'll also scrutinize the handshake line fight between the michigan and wisconsin basketball teams which led to wolverine's coach jawan howard getting suspended for the rest of the regular season and finally slate's alex Kirshner will be here for a conversation about the proposed saudi takeover of pro golf which now appears to be just as dead as european soccer's super league i'm in washington dc and i'm the author of the queen and the host of the podcast one year Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Stefan, it's the final day of the biggest sportocrat spectacle of the year. You must be sad.
1: I'm a little sad, a little sad, but I'm happy because it's also a very, very exciting week date-wise. It's palindrome week. 220, 22, 221, 22, 22, 223, 22, 22, 22, et cetera. Kind of wish there was a 229. It was a leap year because we're, uh, we're losing out on, on one palindromic date.
0: So when you wake up every day, it's just like each day is the greatest day of your life. It, they just keep building on each other. Well, congratulations. Uh, and back, not back, he's always here, Joel Anderson. I'm reading off an old script, Joel. Okay. Well, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I was like, there's that time when you, uh, <laughs> when, when you were off for a couple of weeks and I just haven't gotten over it. What can okay. I say? Well, he's a slate staff writer, host of uh, slow burn season six on the LA riots and season three, biggie and Tupac. How are you, Joel?
2: I'm great. I'm glad. Obviously my return last week was that memorable that, uh, <laughs> 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 but yes, I'm good. I'm fine. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. I, I don't, I, I have a vague idea of what palindromes are, so I'm going to have to look that up in the, during the break and catch up and see why Stefan's so excited. <laughs>
1: The Winter Olympics ended on Sunday with a feat of athletic brilliance. The American cross-country skier Jessie Diggins winning a silver medal in the grueling 30-kilometer race. 30 hours after suffering about a food poisoning, her legs cramping for more than half of the course in weather so cold it literally froze a Finnish skier's dick. What a scene at the end with Diggins collapsed in exhaustion in the snow. I thought I was going to die at the finish line, she said. As for the rest of the Games, it was business as usual. A dictatorship host, a doping controversy, and a European sportocrat gaslighting and gasbagging the world. This unifying power of the Olympic Games is stronger than the forces that want to divide us. International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach lied at the closing ceremony. May the political leaders around the world be inspired by your example of solidarity and peace. Meanwhile, Russia was moving 100,000 troops to the Ukrainian border. Our Slate colleague Justin Peters used that Bach quotation in an excellent Olympic wrap-up that concluded his typically excellent two weeks of Olympic coverage. Welcome, Justin.
3: Hey, guys. Uh, stronger, higher, faster, I okay. <laughs>
1: Every two years, man. All right, with China's sports washing, Russia's figure skating abuse, and the pandemic, I think it's fair to say that Beijing 2022 could go down as the most discomforting games of all time, except maybe for Berlin 1936, Munich 72, Montreal 76, Moscow 80, LA 84, Atlanta 96, Beijing 2008, Sochi 2014, and Tokyo 2020 slash 2021. Justin, is it recency bias, or did the Olympics' usual moral, financial, and bureaucratic sludge somehow feel even more sludgy this time?
3: You know, I I wrote about this right at the start of the Games. This is my sixth Olympics for slate. And I think I said that every single Games that I've covered since 2012 was morally indefensible in its way. So there's never a blameless Olympics. But... These were pretty bad. I mean, the U.S. doesn't use the term genocide lightly. It's not one of those things that you just sort of like tweet out to see what sort of reaction that it's going to get. And that is exactly the term that the U.S. has used uh, to describe the internment and repression of the uh, Uyghurs by the Chinese state. And with that not just backgrounding the games, but but foregrounding them. I mean, uh, the Chinese president literally had one of the two final torchbearers at the Olympic ceremony be a Uyghur athlete uh, in what was a definite provocation of everyone who thinks that genocide is a bad thing instead of something to be flaunted in front of the world uh, with a torch. So you look at that, and you're like, yeah, these were especially hard to stomach, and that is probably the most kind thing I could say about them.
0: Well, a lot of the time I feel like in Olympic history, the kinds of pieces that you wrote before the Olympics about, like, this is indefensible, those happen on a kind of (laughs) recurring schedule, and then the games happen, and we all forget about how bad they are, and we all celebrate the the power and beauty of athletics and of competition. And then maybe at the end, we, you know, have a little uh, morality sandwich where we say at the end, oh, yeah, the Olympics are bad. But um, this Olympics, you had the Valieva scandal in the middle, which there wasn't really ever, I, I think, a moment for us to forget um to kind of erase the memory from our brains, because the highlight of every Winter Olympics is the figure skating, and every conversation about the figure skating this year was not only about Russian doping, but, you know, we had a bunch of pieces on Slate about figure skating itself being morally indefensible, and the ways in which these young women get treated, not just you know, doped up, but also um, the ways in which the, the sport is evolving and and quad jumps and um, how you have to train them so that you potentially injure yourself and um, the stuff about the Russian team and the coach, Edry uh, Tupurica, um and how there have been credible allegations about her treatment of athletes, her abuse of athletes that have been ignored. And so, Justin, we never really had that opportunity to just like pretend that it was all you know sparkly snowflakes and ice crystals this time around.
3: I mean, so I do this recurring feature called Olympics Jerk Watch, uh, as you know, Josh, where basically I look around the Olympics and I see someone who may or may not be a jerk, and I dig into their jerkiness or lack thereof to determine whether or not they're a jerk. And there actually was a point. I think on like the fourth or fifth day of the Olympics when I'm like, huh, not too many jerks to be found this year so far. It's a surprisingly jerk-free Olympics. And then literally like fate comes and kicks me in the ass and they're like, well, all right, you're clearly just not paying attention to figure skating yet because all the jerks are there. And it was just, yeah, you know, jerks all the way down since then. So you take the geopolitical shitstorm that was backgrounding both the... um Uh, where the Olympics were happening and uh, the war that people were hoping was not going to start in the middle of the Games for the entirety of the thing. And then you've got the doping scandal that is still happening and still involving Russia, despite the fact that for the last eight years, the entire world has been saying, why is Russia so often... (laughs) embroiled in doping at the Olympics, and why do they keep on coming back to the Olympics? And, you know, I tried to find moments of joy in this, but, you know, it was just a, you know, it was a moral slog for most of the time.
2: Well, yeah, Justin, actually, I wanted to, for a second, go small instead of broad for a second, because you're someone who covers these, watches and covers these pretty intently. So you wrote... Uh, the Olympics are one of the most wasteful and frivolous things that humans do. They cost untold billions each cycle, and the residents of the cities where they happen generally do not want them. So, like, and you just said a second ago, you try to find the joy in this, but did, what did you find to enjoy this time? Was there anything that made this experience notably different from the previous five you've covered for Slate? I mean,
3: the joy, as in all of them, If you're going to find it, Joel, I mean, I think you got to find a way to compartmentalize and as sort of, you know, perhaps indefensible uh, choice that is to make on sort of just a human and humanitarian basis. Like if you can compartmentalize and not worry about the rhetoric of the Olympics and the geopolitics of the Olympics and just focus on the extraordinary individual effort and courage shown by the athletes at the Olympics, then there's always something to, you know, watch and cheer for and enjoy. I, I really loved watching Lindsay Jacobellis uh, win gold on her fifth try after this narrative sprung up around her that she was a showboat and a hot dog who couldn't make it happen in the clutch, despite her being the literal most decorated snowboard cross racer of all time. Uh, 40-year-old Nick Baumgartner uh, winning gold in his fourth Olympics was amazing to watch. And Jesse Dickens, the uh, American cross-country skier, um, going round and round and round in that frigid weather, uh, cold enough to freeze a man's dick so hard that it requires medical attention afterwards, collapsing over the finish line uh, in a sport that no one in America likes or is good at, uh, in something where there's no reward except um, the pain that you come to love. It's not fun to watch Jesse Dickens suffer for an hour and a half, but it is extraordinary. And the Olympics, to me, has always been this strange mixture of extraordinary moments Combined with just moral indefensibility, and I keep coming back to them, but you know, I,
1: <laughs> it's harder and harder to do it every single time. Yeah, I mean, the the Chinese government's role in a lot of this obviously made it feel worse. I mean, uh, the Times and the New York Times and ProPublica did a really good story where they identified three thousand fake uh, social media accounts that were pushing Chinese propaganda around the games. Um, And I think that was the, you know, certainly the overriding issue coming in here. I mean, nobody wanted these Winter Olympics. I mean, Beijing and Kazakhstan were the only two bidders. Um, Beijing is not a winter sports place. Um, If it weren't for like a, a weird snowstorm, the cross country and 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 Nordic. Ski areas would have been brown in the background. I mean, the snow was all fake. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the the Moreland defensibility is something we're used to in sports, right? I mean, it's the reason we can watch the NFL as much as we watch the NFL. It requires some gymnastics to get through it, and we look past it. And, again, you're right, Justin. There were stories here that made you feel like, hey, sports are really great, and that is why we pay attention. I mean, even Michaela Schifrin going 0 for 6 in – Ski racing and her reactions, her sort of dignity in dealing with it all um, was really impressive. Um, She took a shit ton of shit on social media, like brutal stuff, the way athletes do. And every time we're reminded about that, it's also sort of horrifying and illuminating about what athletes go through. I mean, so there were good stories here, um, but it did feel like, look, what did we talk about on the show? We talked about... Eileen Gu, and we talked about the Valieva scandal, and we led this off by, yeah, mentioning Jesse Diggins, but also talking about the the moral compromises we make to watch sports.
3: I mean, the thing with the NFL is that no one but the literal most delusional people would ever claim that the NFL is a vector for world peace. Right? No one thinks that. No one even says that. And yet that's what the IOC says every single time The uh, they step into the spotlight. That's what Thomas Bach wants to say in order to justify these wasteful, extraordinarily, you know, difficult to sort of comprehend games continuing to happen. Like the lie of Olympism is definitively a lie at this point. It's not going to lead to a more harmonious world. The minute after the games ended, Putin sent 100,000 more troops to Ukraine, right? Like, no one is stepping back from their geopolitical ambitions just because um, sports are fun and they're fun to watch. And you got to tell these lies in order to justify holding these things, but you don't have to believe them uh, on the viewer's side. And there's no reason to believe them anymore, if there ever was.
0: Yeah, I mean, the top values of the Olympics, the ones that are embodied by the games every single time, are acquiescence and complicity, right? Like, there's a rule that you're not allowed to protest or speak out politically. And the stated purpose for that is that the games are apolitical, and it's just about celebrating um, cooperation and companionship and global unity. But, you know, the reality is that um, they prop up this fiction and they allow the games to proceed with the kind of minimal interruptions and proceed within this bubble um, where we can all kind of pretend. And the athletes, I think, are the real victims here because, you know, Jesse Dickens (laughs) didn't do anything wrong. Uh, None of the athletes uh, that we've uh, mentioned kind of bringing us joy during these Olympics sort of are complicit and even in the way I think we are as as viewers. Um, and for somebody like Lindsay Jacob Ellis or somebody like Michaela Schifrin, it's not like they have any kind of alternate venue for the world to appreciate what it is that they do. Like you were saying, Justin, there's no reward outside of the Olympics for Jessie Diggins. Like, to the extent that she's tainted by being in this event, you know, on fake snow, uh, you know, in China, where if she were to speak out against the Chinese government, she'd be booted out of the Olympics. It's like, what other alternative does she have? Uh, and, and it's a compromise that I think athletes are, are going to have to continue to make. And um, so if we want to enjoy these athletes, if we want to experience these moments, then this is going to be the place to find them.
1: I would add to that, Josh, and uh, Justin, you pointed this out in one of your pieces, that the biggest potential change agent here is the United States. It generates the most revenue for the Olympics. The Olympics are fueled by you know, NBC's broadcast money. Um, the United States could do more here to call out the hypocrisy and the abuse and and the the tyranny of the acronyms that run the games and run the sports federations around the world but it chooses to be complicit in all of this bullshit instead of calling it out i mean is it realistic to even think justin that the united states could do more or would be willing to do more yeah you know, a
3: reader pointed this out to me and it's a good point that the us is fairly unique among the Olympic competing nations of the world insofar as the U.S. OPC is a separate entity from uh, the United States government. We don't have a ministry of sports in the United States. It's uh, unaffiliated with the U.S. government. So, you know, the diplomatic boycott that the U.S., uh, the Biden administration observed with respect to these games is about as far unilaterally as the government can go to say, hey, we don't uh, support this. They cannot just decree that the U.S. athletes don't go to uh, Beijing because they're not in charge of that decision. That said, is there, you know, soft pressure that the U.S. can exert on the U.S. OPC? Absolutely. I mean, if you know, Biden were to come out and say, I think it's a very, very bad thing. I don't think we should go to, uh, compete at these games. If they're worth diplomatically boycotting, they're worth actually boycotting. Um, then that puts it in the hands of the committee to say, well, do we want to, you know, do we want to look like the jerks and go anyway? Um, so yeah, there is more that the U.S. could do to, you know, force change in sort of that regard. Uh, But, you know, also I think NBC has a huge role to play here as they always do. Their $7.7 billion that they've spent to broadcast for broadcast rights for the games through, I believe, 2032 is what makes the Olympics the Olympics as opposed to some random overseas sports carnival that no one watches, right? i got to give them some credit. They did not sidestep the China issue. They did not sidestep the uh, Volieva uh, doping issue. They address them, but they address them in the way that sometimes networks feel obliged to address something just so that they cannot be criticized for not addressing it before going on to treat the games like, you know, there's still, you know, joy and peace and everything right with the world. Well, you know, there's part of that with the games, but they're also everything wrong with the world in a lot of ways. And I feel NBC is in a position to call that out more um or to exert pressure on the IOC because IOC needs its money. And just for, to
2: backtrack for a second, I mean, is it the problem with this the same way that it is in pretty much every geopolitical issue in the world that people can argue that America is compromised in pretty much every way and that it can 't really make a lot of this, I mean obviously there's different levels to like the levels of you know oppression or um you know human rights abuses in these countries, but that the u s is compromised in that way and competition wise like you know it 's not like American athletes are known for being clean either, right Justin oh no that's absolutely right, I mean <laughs> we
3: are pioneers in doping in sports, you know America does that as well or better as any nation in the history of the world. Um, It was actually the first article I ever wrote for Slate about almost exactly 17 years ago was about the uh, Maryland physician who created the first anabolic steroid that was put into wide use among weightlifters in the United States. So it might be easy to say, Russia, bad, doping, bad. But it's more accurate to say, well, you know... (laughs) Russia didn't invent doping, and we do a lot of it ourselves. And it is hard to be a moral leader when you are as immoral or amoral as any other party to the consensual
1: fiction that is the Olympics Games. Justin Peters writes for Slate. He just spent two weeks delivering brilliant stories about the olympic games um we're going to talk some more in the bonus segment with uh with justin thanks for coming on the show
3: thanks for having me guys it's always a thrill
2: coming up
1: next Michigan coach Juwan Howard's five-game suspension for slapping an opposing coach.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Only
2: minutes after igniting a melee following a 77 to 63 loss at Wisconsin on Sunday, Michigan head coach jawan Howard was surprisingly casual about his decision to swing at a Badgers assistant coach. He even blamed Wisconsin head coach Greg guard for starting all of the trouble. Here's Howard in the postgame press conference. Well, basically,
3: uh, you know, I addressed with uh, the head coach that uh, I will remember that <laughs> because of that timeout and, uh, someone to touch me. And I think that was um, very uncalled for him to touch me as we were verbalizing to communicate with one another. So that's what ended up happening. And that's what escalated.
2: But Howard was singing a much different tune Monday after he was suspended for the rest of the regular season, five games for his role in the brawl. Howard apologized in a public statement saying that after taking time to reflect on all that happened, I realize now how unacceptable both my actions and words were and how they affected so many. I'm truly sorry. He apologized to the Wisconsin assistant coach, but did not apologize to Greg Gard. The Big Ten levied one-game suspensions against two Michigan players and one Wisconsin player. Gard, the Wisconsin coach, was fined $10,000. But, Stefan, this turned into something of a weekend culture war, and I guess we just needed something since the All-Star dunk contest was such a flop. Where some folks said Howard didn't get a stiff enough punishment, and others said Howard bore no responsibility for things getting out of hand. So what do you think happened at the Kohl Center on Sunday?
1: Well, before we get into whether Howard did or did not behave like a Michigan man or should or should not have been fired, can I tell a little personal story? Years ago, I played in an indoor soccer league in New York. My team was losing a game by like four goals with 30 seconds to go. Instead of backing off and doing nothing, I ran at a guy who had been pissing me off all game, tried to make an awkward tackle, and heard my right ACL pop. Same thing in Michigan, Wisconsin. 15 seconds to go. Juwan Howard is pissed that his team is losing big. Instead of backing off and letting the game end, Howard leaves his starters on the court after Wisconsin has emptied its bench and then he presses. Then instead of letting his walk-ons deal with it and getting the game over with, Greg Gard calls a timeout. Then in the handshake line, the proverbial ACL pops when Howard decides to tell Gard, I'll remember that shit. And Gard decides to grab Howard's arm and push him back a little so that he can have his say. And Howard tells him, don't fucking touch me like five times and all hell breaks loose. Testosterone, once again, is undefeated, I think is the moral of the story here. There are no heroes. Howard obviously shouldn't have said anything and kept walking, and he certainly should have laid hands, which encouraged players to start swinging because they're like 19 and excitable. Not good coach role modeling here. And guard should have recognized that Howard was pissed and just kept walking. Also not good coach role modeling. But why didn't guard get a game or two for escalating the bullshit? And why didn't the Wisconsin assistant coach get any punishment for jumping in and running his mouth and apparently grabbing a Michigan player, which may have triggered Howard to slap him across the head? Joel over the weekend retweeted a street fight video and I have a feeling that if this hadn't happened in a basketball arena, the Wisconsin assistant would have been one of the dudes lying in the gutter.
0: <laughs> his name is Joe Krabenhoft. The man has a name. Actually, according to Joan Howard, his name is Joel Krabenhoft. Uh, he did apologize to Joel Krabenhoft, but not to Joe Former Sioux
1: City Skyforce player.
0: Legendary. Oh my goodness. So my favorite aspect of this, uh, controversy is like people like Seth Davis, the uh, esteemed college basketball commentator Seth Davis flying in to say, I knew as soon as this happened that some people would take to Twitter and call for an end to handshake lines, like the dictionary definition of like conjuring a straw man argument. I know all of you people are saying that we should just end civility and morality in our society because of this event. But I say that civility, there still is a place for it. America, even though you, the American people, don't see it. I mean, how many handshake lines do we have uh, per week that both nothing kind of happens in terms of conflict, but also there's not any kind of genuine exchange of what we like to think of as, like, the good game, good game, sportsmanship sort of situation? Like, how many of those lines do you guys see where people don't even look at each other and just like don't actually shake, but just like barely touch hands? I mean, the whole thing is this sort of perfunctory um performance of sportsmanship and solidarity. And we all just really tried. I mean, it's actually kind of reminiscent to the last minute of a basketball game that's already been decided, right? You're just like, it's a performance of basketball. You're not actually trying, and then when somebody actually does try, then you're offended that they're actually still playing. Oh, except then if they call time out, then it's just any kind of situation where <laughs> the only rules governing it are just you know personal sense of like what uh, what you should be doing and what honor means and what respect means. There's always going to be sort of disagreement around what those things are when they're not explicitly written out in the rule book. And I like testosterone is undefeated because this whole thing was stupid and could have been stopped at any kind of moment along the way. Um, and just, it wasn't because everybody was mad, so mad.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think everybody is pretending to be mad. And I think that's probably my biggest takeaway from this is that I don't have to pretend this is a big deal. We don't have to pretend this is a big deal. Which is why, like, in a lot of ways, I'm sort of loathe to talk about this publicly because there's no upshot to saying something that isn't obvious, right? And so the way I think about it is that there's a couple of ways to discuss this. One is this is happening in the world that I want to live in. And the other is this is happening in the world that I actually live in. So to explain, in the world I want to live in, we can acknowledge that people aren't supposed to fight, like, let alone people who position themselves as leaders of men. Right. If, if the players had really been involved or instigated the fight, the response would have been more unreasonable and the punishment would have likely been more severe. So Juwan Howard and Greg Gard didn't cover themselves in glory here. But also fights in athletic competitions are never a big deal. And we almost always laugh about them in retrospect and cringe at the self-seriousness over them. Like, just think about it. Anytime there's a fight, people are outraged and scandalized in the moment. Then five or ten years later we come to realize it was all silly and overblown. And that even covers the most ridiculous, outrageous looking fight that we any of us ever saw, the malice at the palace. Like now we know enough to be like, ha ha ha, that's hilarious, right? So um I think about, you know, John Cheney and John Calipari that that uh Stefan has brought up. So just think uh, think about the behavior of managers in the in the Major League Baseball. Think about how we treat fiery coaches in the NHL. You know, Bobby Knight's antics were mostly amusing until people realized he couldn't stop himself from putting his hands on his players Warren Sapp and Mike Sherman like all that kind of shit like we're already like this is the world we sort of live in but we it's like it, we have this delay glitch here that we have to pretend that this actually means more than it actually does and that brings you up to the world which we actually live in which is I look I don't know if people are really upset about this if they believe that Juan Howard set a bad example it should be fired but I do know without being accused of being woke or injecting critical race theory into this, is that the response to Black people who lose their temper is almost always overheated and disproportionate to the scale of the offense. Completely agree.
1: John Cheney had made a career out of losing his mind at other coaches um, and often at his own players. And the one that we remember is the one where he lost his mind at John Calipari... (laughs) And this was in 1994 when Calipari was coaching UMass. And Cheney, of course, was the coach of Temple. Why don't we just play the clip of Calipari? Please, let's play the clip. This was not on the court. This was in the media um, room after the game.
3: Set Cheney off. And you send your kids out there
0: pushing and shoving. The guys did a hell of a job. You had the best officiating you could ever get here. And for you to ride them, I want to be a part of that. I just got my ass blasted for giving them hell down in West Virginia. And here you get a hell of a job right here today. Good job. Three class guys. And you pick them out here and single them out. You can't get that. Hey, Shut up. Shut up. I'm killing you. I'm you, get you, I'm you hey, hey
4: Come on, come on. You got a
3: good team John, John. and you don't need that edge. John,
0: John.
3: That's why I was telling my kid to knock your fing kid in on,
0: the mouth on, standing on, there pushing come him come in the game. Come on, come on.
3: Some things never cease to amaze me.
1: I watched John Chaney on the sidelines throughout college. He was the most entertaining and beloved coach in Philadelphia and maybe the country. What a guy. It should also be pointed out that in 1984, when I was an undergraduate, he choked the head coach of GW at halftime of a game. So, you know, John
0: Chaney had his his moments.
2: (laughs) Halftime adjustment. Let me better position my security guard between me and John Chaney.
0: Obviously, there would be a different kind of conversation if Jawan Howard had actually hit the assistant coach. I mean, it was talked about as being a punch, but it was more like a a light, open palm slap. And I think it would also, like like you guys were saying, it also, coach on player is different than coach on coach. But I think a lot of what this rhetoric has been over the weekend is because of the idea of what, Michigan stands for, Michigan's kind of self-conception about um, what its values are um, and like that it kind of sees itself as being superior morally and ethically to other college programs. But also I think it's the way that college sports perceives itself. And we're seeing this just sort of uneasy period in um, college sports history where it's becoming more like pro sports with NIL. And like we, the, the kind of fiction has been deteriorating for the last, you know, decade or so. This this idea that um, college is more like high school, or college is more like middle school, with players who just play for the love of the game, and that um, this idea that what college coaches do is teach. Like, that's the entire kind of legend and myth of Mike Krzyzewski, right? It's like, oh, it's just incidental that I have a Nike deal and that I make, you know, $10 million a year, whatever I make, that what I really do is mold these people into young men and and lead. And I think this maybe a part of what you're, uh, you know, to play off of what you're saying, Joel, is a part of this conversation about, you know, maybe he should be fired. Maybe we need to have a broader conversation about sportsmanship. Is because of this like vestigial idea of what college sports is and that Juwan Howard isn't actually a basketball coach. That what Juwan Howard is is a teacher and that what the, this enormous arena with, you know, people paying oodles of money to see this like huge basketball game, that it's actually more like a classroom. <laughs> that I mean, it's ridiculous to to say it, but I just feel like that hasn't that idea is still super powerful in our culture, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it has some resonance, right? In 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 theory, that 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 maybe the reality of what college sports and college coaches are hasn't quite caught up to the mythology that has preceded it for you know decades and decades. But my friend Myron Metcalf at ESPN made some great points um, this weekend about what passes for acceptable behavior in the coaching ranks. He wrote. Well, we're talking about Rick Patino possibly getting another Power Five job. Will Wade of LSU still coaching after a quote strong ass offer lead. And Bruce Pearl perhaps being national coach of the year. Um, let's not pretend that these guys are, you know, this is a lot this is going into the model of the the Mike Shushewski kind of shit. That they represent something more than themselves. And that's always been problematic. And so we get disappointed or outraged whenever their behavior deviates from that mythology. But like, if you just think of it, Juwan Howard's a dude, man. And so is Greg Guard. And sometimes when shit is out there, you get frustrated and sometimes you might lash out. And obviously you're not supposed to do that. Like we, nobody needs to say the obvious thing that obviously coaches aren't supposed to hit each other. You're not supposed to hit each other. You're not supposed to fight. Like we all know that, but like shit, man, sometimes shit gets real. And you get mad because that's what competition is, and it might escalate. But nobody
0: got hurt. You know what I'm saying? Like
2: at the end but of the day, actually,
0: but but Joel, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like Michigan actually overreacted. Honestly, like him getting suspended for the rest of the regular season. Yeah. Like I guess there's some universe in which you. I mean, you have to suspend him, right? Like there's no mm-hmm. universe yeah. in which you it's, it's suspend an him for like punishment. a game. But yeah. but are you surprised then? I mean, because you, you're reacting to a certain like segment of the conversation where people were like maybe pretending to be more upset than they actually are. but it doesn't seem like you know given the kind of historical factors here, given you know what you said, which is totally accurate, that when black people show anger or when a black person punches uh, someone, then people tend to overreact to that, like it seems like this could have gone off the rails a lot more than it actually did and if what we're uh, mad about is certain people pretending to be mad it's better than being mad at an actual like kind of injustice being perpetrated here
2: yeah i mean it could have been much worse i mean you know Juwan howard could have both instigated a fight that got way out of control and we could have had you know the malice at the palace right um which again you know 10 years 15 we would years have had later some we'd...
0: really annoying conversations
2: yeah right and then but then 10 or 15 years later we'd have been like man that was fucking awesome remember that time you know there was a big brawl at the coal center or whatever um and and so yeah i guess i don't know i it's really hard for me to divorce this conversation from the responses I saw on the internet, because let's be fucking honest. Who was watching Michigan versus Wisconsin in college basketball on Sunday, bro? Like, I mean, I look, what's the rating? It's probably like the Big East, the Big East Creighton versus, you know, Seton Hall game <laughs> I was of the week. Say, was the you know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> like, like nobody was watching this and actually gives a shit. So, I mean, I'm responding to people that were responding to that.
0: But Joel, that's the thing that I find so funny. It's like when you talk about, Sometimes people just, in competition, people get heated. And that's true. But the thing that people were heated about was the part of the game where they weren't competing anymore. It's like people finding dumb... Like, everybody, if you're talking about people pretending to be mad on the internet about this. I mean, what more could you pretend to be mad about than someone pressing in the last minute of a 15-point game and oh, then yeah. somebody calling timeout? I mean, if they want to get mad about something, get mad about something that's worth getting mad about. I mean, that's why I kind of circle back to Stefan else? said. It's just like, I guess yeah, it's the, Don't you think something. that's about something
2: else? You know what I mean? Like, don't you think that that anger comes from something? I mean, I could go a couple of ways here. And I'm going to, the easiest way to say is that Juwan Howard and Greg Gard. Like, first of all, Juwan Howard's probably pissed he's getting his ass kicked in the middle of an NCAA right. tournament run. He may not like Greg Gard. And I just... Can't. I'm trying to figure out if I actually want to say this. This is the nuance that I'm loath to explain in mixed company, but I'll try. From a very young age, if you're a black athlete, it's like coaches, media, are trying to sand down your rough edges because you're pathological. Like... We must teach you how to behave or something. And so there's this tension about being confronted about your sportsmanship or lack of it over and over again throughout sports. So it's just like all these people that are coming to well, you, this is the way you play the right way. This is how you do sportsmanship or, or, or do it. And Juwan Howard came up in that system. And so you have this guy. He's, just, I'm like, look, man, I'm not fucking with you. I'm mad. We'll address this later. And this guy's coming over to try to set you aside, to set you straight on what is going on or what is the right thing to do or the right way to behave at this moment. There's a little coach planning going on there from Greg Gard. Yeah, and I don't want to project too much of that into that. And I feel bad like I know that just saying it is probably really annoying. But like I could understand it's like, man, don't I do not don't talk to me. Don't touch me. I know as much about sports as you do. And in fact, you could argue that I know more about sportsmanship and basketball at the highest levels than even you do. Don't touch me. Let's not talk about this. But you know, like, I don't, I don't want to project that on Juwan Howard, but I'm just wondering if that's some of the things that, that was actually animating Juwan Howard's anger as opposed to like, you know, they call it a timeout. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like it was something else. Like, it wasn't really that.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And there have been these conversations about Juwan Howard since he got hired at Michigan, you know, a couple of years ago that like he's bringing the Fab Five Edge back. And, and you know he looks different than other coaches in the Big Ten. He has different background. He was a player, you know, the Fab Five when they were players were known for, and and you can say this with a certain <laughs> valence if you wanna if you want to say it. They're known for bringing like a different kind of attitude to mm-hmm. Big Ten basketball. They wore baggy and so, shorts
1: and were irreverent.
0: So it's just it just seemed like there have been questions. About whether Jawan Howard belongs, like whether um, he's somebody who has the right comportment to be on the sideline, and I'm sure it, you're right, Joel. Like we can't know what's going on in his in his head, and if that rankles him. But it seems like he has a chip on his shoulder.
1: Would Jawan Howard? And you know, I I haven't read the local media uh, to see how they're reacting to this. But how much slack does Juwan Howard get cut? I mean, he did have a confrontation with Mark Turgeon of Maryland last year, though that looked pretty benign after watching the after watching the video. It looked like two coaches yelling at each other from afar. Um, so I don't know if that plays into it, Joel.
2: Well, no, I mean, Stephen actually make a great point because I just let's just take the face of college basketball at ESPN, Dick Vitale, the guy who after the game tweeted, look, Greg Guard was no innocent bystander in the situation with Juan Howard. Calling a timeout was absurd with six, 15 seconds left. Guard seeing the anger in Howard's face should have kept his hands off him. Howard slept inexcusable, saying all that suspension is a must slash firing. No, I, his tweet kind of lost steam near the end. I don't know what he actually meant there. But then if you go to 2019, there's this tweet. I'll say it again to those that disagree with me that Rick Pitino deserves a second chance. He's been denied for two years to coach in college. Um, look, man, obviously, again, there are dynamics. I don't want to accuse Dick Vitale of anything. But, yeah, you're right. Like, Juwan Howard's not going to get the same amount of rope that these other guys do. And, Juwan Howard, I hope you know that, bro, that – you don't have another you don't you're not going to get another strike you know what i mean this will be it for you and and just imagine just imagine being juan howard and you have to depend not only on you keeping your own self under control but that you've got to keep 18 to 23 year old young men under control you can't have an incident like this around your program at all ever again going forward so um that's going to be really tough i hope he can withstand it In the next segment, we've got Alex Carson to talk about Saudi Arabia and
0: golf. This week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, our Olympics correspondent, Justin Peters, will be back with us to wrap up the games, talk about his masterful creation, fast curling you want to listen to our plus segments every week and you haven't signed up for Slate Plus yet, this actually might be the best time. We're offering you $25 off your first year right now if you go to slate.com slash hangup plus. Becoming a Slate Plus member is the best way to support us here at Hangup. And this sale is only happening for a limited time. So go sign up now, slate.com slash hangup plus. At the top of this next segment, I'm going to quote some comments from the golfer Phil Mickelson about why he was interested in a new Saudi backed golf tour, despite that nation's horrifying human rights record. In a statement released after we finished recording, Mickelson apologized for those comments, which he called reckless, and said they didn't reflect his true feelings. But he also said that his experience with the Saudi investment group that's putting together the new tour has been very positive. That they have a clear plan to create an updated and positive experience for everyone, including players, sponsors, networks, and fans. All right, now on to our segment. There was a time in the not-too-distant past, I'm going to date it to early last week, that it looked like the whole structure of professional golf was getting ripped apart and replaced by something new, a tour bankrolled by Saudi Arabia. But as we record this on Tuesday morning, it looks like that Saudi tour is pretty much dead, with the best players in the world pledging their allegiance, some more enthusiastically than others, to the PGA tour. Joining us now to discuss is Alex Kirshner, who wrote about this golf maelstrom for Slate last week. Hey, Alex. Josh, hello. Great to be with you. Thank you. So, I want to start with Phil Mickelson. And it seems like what might have caused this whole thing to fall apart is this quote that Phil Mickelson gave. And it was a quote um, in a book excerpt, in a book by Alan Shipnuck, and the quote was about Saudi Arabia. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. Just one of the all-time most amazing quotes In the history of sports, in my view. Maybe that's uh, recency bias speaking, but um, how much was it just this quote and the fact that it got out there and made the whole thing um, look as bald and empty and gross as it was um, responsible for this whole thing getting torpedoed? It does feel like Phil
4: flew a little bit too close to the sun here. He said something out loud that anyone paying any attention could have easily deduced, but that you're still not supposed to say out loud because it forces you to drop a level of pretense that most people in sports and in capitalism and in international relations, you know, try to keep up and, and, you know, the Olympics keeps this up with, with China. You see, you know, formula one racing keeps this up with various dictatorships that it does business. in. um, you know, you can talk about how, uh, how you think this is a great opportunity for golf and how you know you want to, quote-unquote, grow the game in Saudi Arabia, which is kind of the euphemism that they have used for, you know, we want to put a sport in a place where it hasn't existed, where there's an authoritarian government. But you really can't come out and say they kill gay people, they kill Jamal Khashoggi, they are, quote, scary motherfuckers to get involved with, And I'm going to do it anyway. You're just not supposed to to say that out loud. And it did seem to spook a number of of players who might have been on the fence and has really done some harm to the effort for this Saudi golf tour.
1: To be clear, the Saudi golf tour would have been in the United States mostly. Um, And the idea was particularly would be appealing to older players because they would have some 54 hole events. They wouldn't play as much and there would be a shit ton of money involved. Um... The cherry on top, of course, was that they were negotiating with the Trump organization to stage a bunch of these tournaments at his properties. And the Washington Post reported this the other day, but it had been reported, I saw, as far back as last fall. I mean, this wasn't new, but just the confluence of the Trump's Greasing their bank accounts with more Saudi money um, was just really the chef's kiss on this.
4: Yeah, I think that it's an influence peddling operation for Saudi Arabia right. in more ways than one. Sports we use the term exactly sports washing and trying to legitimize yourself in just Western audiences' eyes is certainly a big component of this. I think that's why it's it's a big part of the reason that the public investment fund in Saudi Arabia exists, and it's why it's in Uber. And in a bunch of other tech companies, part of it is that the world is slowly moving away from oil, and they need other other revenue sources. Uh, but part of it is to make friends, and there's no better friend to them than the forty-fifth president, who they probably hope will be the forty-seventh president. Or do I have my numbers off by by one president? I might. I, f- I forget if Biden's forty-five or forty-six. Biden's forty-six. So they, you know, they would love for I'm sure for Donald Trump to be back in office. And you know, Jared Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman are pretty tight. Uh, it's a great partnership there that I'm sure uh, has made quite a bit of money for both of them. So it's in a, in a large scale, it's it's a money making influence peddling operation, or at least that's the attempt. And so the least surprising thing in the world is that if this ever went off, that it would happen at Trump properties.
1: Right. And the other connection here is that the Saudis um, have made made Greg Norman the head of this golf investment arm of their investment fund. And Norman was an outspoken pal of Trump and supporter.
4: Certainly, as was Jack Nicholas, as have been an enormous number of professional golfers. Uh, none of this is a moral enterprise in the first place, but it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I don't think that this enterprise is dead, 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 because anytime you have the amount of money at play, we're talking billions of dollars, well over $1 billion anyway, that the Saudis seem to be prepared to plow into this, I don't think you can ever be completely dead, but uh, they've definitely taken a body blow just because of how poorly the public relations have been managed. Not that there's really a good way to manage the public relations of, of doing something like this.
2: So Alex, obviously money is what's really driving this, right? Um, and that in, in having read your piece, it seems that like the investors in this Saudi Arabian tour or whatever, a team, team tour, is seizing on this class conflict that exists within the PGA tour itself, right? That essentially separates Tiger Woods or Dustin Johnson from, you know, the 203rd and 204th ranked golfers in the world. Right. Um, So is that, is that sort of basically the right way to think about it? That is like, Hey man, we can get rid of the the wheat and the chaff here and like just really limited to the, you know, to the elite of the elite, that that's what people want to see anyway.
4: Yeah. I think that that was the idea, or that was at least the vulnerability that the Saudis have been hoping to exploit and we'll see if they can still do it to any degree, but professional golf, and this is going to sound extremely silly is kind of a meritocratic enterprise just in the way the PGA tour is structured. I know how silly that sounds. Um, Cause I know that these are not populist men for the most part that are playing these games, but you know, you think about the competition structure on the PGA tour, the cut line is the cut line. And if in the first two rounds, tiger woods takes one more shot, than the world's number six hundred golfer, that player goes on and Tiger goes home. Even though Tiger and his you know massive market popularity and fame uh, is a big reason why there is this much money to be won this weekend. Anyway, um, you know there are plenty of ways for players to get exemptions into. Very big events with lots of purse money on the line. Uh, you know, even if you win one of those tournaments, let's say there's you know 10 or 12 million dollars on the line, you might get one and a half, two million for winning, and the rest of that gets distributed, you know, at a minimum tens of thousands of dollars to everyone who played. So it's a very open sport in a way, in a weird way, where even if you are not the cream of the crop, you can make a lot of money, and obviously the players that are not making it in that case are you know, the couple dozen best players in the world. What the Saudis have hoped to do is take a few dozen of those players, pay them outlandish guarantees from their public investment fund money uh, and get them to leave the PJ Tour. You can also, you know, you can promise things like, no, you don't have to make a cut. You can play a shorter schedule. Your money will be guaranteed, maybe with some options to win more, but you won't have to go out on the course and win it every week just for being here. We're going to pay you. And you can see why that would be extremely enticing, and why that would be a pretty good business plan—not to say anything of the lack of morality behind it. But it does seem like the public relations problem here has gotten so big that, at least for the the cream of the crop, the best golfers in the world, it's not going to happen. You know, they might get Jason Kokrak, who's like the twenty-fifth best player in the world, uh, and who has a partnership already with the Saudi government. He might go. Uh, you might have Phil go and beat the baller on the course for a few years here, here here, or not. I don't know. Maybe Bryson DeChambeau will go. But for the most part, Joel, these great golfers that you've mentioned, the absolute best in the world, do not seem down with this at all.
0: So the thing that I have to think about with all of this is like that it challenges my views around athletes and money. Because There's a certain like kind of reactionary view of big money in sports. Like when there's a big baseball contract, the, the kind of knee jerk thing that I, I feel like we would all push back against is like, Oh, these guys make too much money. They're like playing a game that I would play for free. It's like, how dare they get paid the market value for their, um, you know, for, for their talents and abilities. But when I look at all of this and I even look at something like, the player impact program that the PGA tour started, which is, as you described in your piece, Alex, a $40 million fund that goes to the 10 players the tour deems to be driving the most engagement with golf and just seems like kind of a transparent attempt to like keep the the top players happy and and not be a flight risk to this other tour. When I look at all of the money, all of these purses all of the sponsorship deals that these guys get from, you know, car brands and watch brands and insurance brands. I'm just like, they don't need any more money. Why do you need more money? Why do you want however much more money that the Saudis could give you? Aren't you rich enough? And like, it makes me question my like values as a, um, as someone who traditionally Feels like yeah, these guys should should get whatever the the market will bear for them. Like the Saudi thing is separate. Like obviously that there's like a, a moral issue around taking their money. But I, I'm I guess I'm speaking more specifically about them feeling like they're not fairly compensated by the PGA Tour by uh, because fans don't want to see the 300th player that like Bryson maybe like deserves more because he's one of the few people. Um, for you know whatever you think about him, he's one of the few people that people will come out to cheer or to boo. I think that's an interesting
1: point, Josh, because like, what if we substituted a less offensive source of money for the Saudis? Would this then be a typical story of player labor rights and players trying to generate as much revenue as they possibly can for themselves, or would it? Be because we're disgusted by the highest echelon of athlete trying to sort of um, uh, monopolize the most revenue. We're disgusted by that, so there would be blowback regardless, sort of like with the Super League in Europe in soccer last year.
4: I really don't think that this would have been a big problem if the money was coming from somewhere less toxic than Saudi Arabia. And the reason I think that is that the PGA Tour's very existence – came from a similar splitting off between the top top class and the rest of the world's great players in the late 60s when your you know what is today your pga tour pros were playing in tournaments all over the country with a different kind of pro golfer with like the club pro who might give you lessons if you walk to a course in your neighborhood Obviously, those top players figured out that they could make more money on their own circuit, and yeah, over time the circuit's gotten pretty big. There's hundreds of players in a given year um, who are going to play in PGA Tour events. But the reason it exists is that you were able to kind of shrink the the pool of players who are sharing from the same pie, and you're able to you know charge more kind of on a per head basis to your sponsors to get more out of uh, out of purse money and things like that. The Super League in soccer was a good example that sometimes. Populism wins and fans can shout something down if it's just so unpopular that people won't go ahead with it. But I'm not sure that American golf fans have the same emotional attachments to like which tour Brooks Kepka is playing on that English soccer fans do to where Chelsea is going to play in, in European competition. Uh, we're just a little bit more mild-mannered as sports fans, I think. We, we rock the boat less than a lot of European soccer fans do. Uh, But also, this is just not a very, I keep using the word, it's not a very popular sport. And uh, if the money were not coming from the bone saws and from MBS, I think that there's a great chance that this would have gone off without a hitch. Um, I guess the flip side of that is, if not to to launder your reputation, then why would you throw this much money at these players?
2: Uh, So I want to kind of ask all of you all a question, or step back for a second, um, because You know, I, I, you all clearly follow golf a little bit more than me. I I think that's fair to say. Um, and I'm just curious, what do you all like about the sport? And I, and I'm asking this sort of, um, to get to the heart of what I think this Saudi investment is trying to hit at. Like, do you guys enjoy just the platonic ideal of competition or watching these like great, you know, beautiful golf courses all across the country, Pebble Beach, you know, the Masters or whatever, you know, the Augusta, or is it, it's literally about watching the best golfers in the world compete against each other because it feels like like you said i mean it makes sense that a lot of people tune in to watch the best golfers in the world and they will watch them but then people are upset about this so i'm like oh is it just that you all like you know whatever yeah. it is the pga has offered to us for the last half century and we've kind of grown used to that and that's what we prefer um in terms of watching the competition on tv
4: I think the big thing that I like about golf and probably something that makes golf pretty enticing to someone trying to use it to fix up their reputation is that for me, it got its teeth into me early with how I played it with my dad and with his dad before he died. Um, So golf became very early. It became very sentimental to me. Uh, You can tell yourself that you're out in nature, even though you're on kind of a water hogging You know, very neatly manicured course. Uh, Anytime someone says that golf shouldn't exist and all golf courses should be, you know, nationalized and affordable housing should be put there or public parks, I completely agree. Uh, I don't really have a good excuse for why I like it so much, but it's a precision sport. Um, It's great competition. And a lot of people attach golf very sentimentally to something deep within them. And I can understand why, if you're a bad actor, you would think, well, hey, I mean, this is this is the place to make people forget about all of the egregious human rights violations I've perpetrated or, or whatever else.
0: I've never cared about golf from like a playing, like I've never played golf ever. Um, I don't have that family tradition. I don't particularly, I don't watch the regular tournaments. But as a kid who was, more into sports than anything else and really into sports history. Like golf is a thing that has a lot of history attached to it. And so I think that's a thing um, that, you know, that's why the Masters is talked about the way that it is by CBS. They want you to think that you're getting involved in one of the most important and storied, um, sorry, I'm not going to use the word tradition, uh, events uh, in, in all of, of America. Like that's the kind of, there's some truth to that and there's some, fiction to it. And it just feels like if you're growing up in this country as somebody who cares about sports and it's like the main thing that you care about, you're just going to like, oh, like the majors are like a thing that like people talk about and, and watch. And then like you get caught up in the Tiger Woods thing. And then, you know, you get caught up in the like Bryson and Brooks uh kerfuffle. And so I don't, I, I don't care about, I don't know who Jason Kokrak is. Um I don't care about watching um, just the platonic ideal of an iron shot, um, to the extent that I've cared about it. It's because it's like part of this like sweep of American sports. And there are like certain characters who are involved in it who like, you know, they just like come across your consciousness and you either care about them or don't care about them or you love them or or hate them. But I don't have the kind of romantic or sentimental attachment. And I feel like I would, I don't think I would have a very hard time staying away from a new tour with new events, especially one backed by Saudi money. Like, I don't care enough about any of these athletes to follow them to their next thing. Right,
1: but a lot of American golf fans do because this is a sport of privilege and this is a sport of striving and it is a sport that people who are super invested in the game can do and feel like, oh, I got a five handicap. You know, I'm not that far off from the pros, even though they know that when you watch a professional athlete up close, they are much, much better than you are. But there's a closeness there. And, and I, think that the, I think that the money part of it is enormous, that there's a, a, a class issue with golf that for people who grew up in a certain place with a certain amount of money that had a certain amount of access – To play this sport, golf feels very, like, privileged, clubby. I mean, I played golf. I was on my high school golf team. Um, I sucked. I was, like, only played on the golf team because I got cut from the baseball team, and my best friend played. Um, But I developed the sort of connection to the game because I like playing it. Um, You know, it was frustrating and challenging, and I never got good enough to want to keep going, but... Um, I did enjoy being you know, out there and trying to break 90.
4: There's a symbiosis between pro PGA Tour golf and people watching golf that I think does not exist in other sports. It's not a true symbiosis, yeah. but it's kind of a marketing relationship that maybe gets to some of what is appealing about this. Uh, PGA Tour athletes are trying to sell you the same tools that they use to do their trade. You know, there's there's almost no resemblance between the six iron that I might hit and the six iron that Colin Morikawa would hit. Um, If I tried to swing that club, it would be like swinging a knife. I would barely be able to make the ball go anywhere. These, these are just engineered so differently. Um, But he's still trying to sell me that club uh, or if he's not Dustin Johnson is or someone else's pro golf wants you to feel like you are like these guys Like they are your peers, Um, sure, like they're flying on net jets and you're flying in coach and sure, their clubs are engineered 50 times over to the exact specifications of the world's most elite players uh, and you bought yours off the racket dicks, but you're in league with these guys. You know, they're like you. In some cases, you could even play the same course as they do. And so you'll follow them even if you don't have the kind of sentimental attachment to them that you might to your soccer team.
0: We got a little deeper in this conversation than I thought we were going to get. So, thank thank you to Golf for being uh, uh, for for bringing this out of us, and thank you, uh, Alex Kirshner, for your great piece. We'll link to it on our show notes and for coming on the show. Thank you all. Great to talk with you.
1: And now it is time for after balls on Monday, the former UCLA and NBA star and current Milwaukee Bucks analyst, Marcus Johnson posted on Twitter. What I gather is an annual video of him attempting to dunk on his birthday, which is pretty cool. Let's listen.
2: 66
3: years old, time for the birthday dunk. That's right, I'm gonna give it one more shot. Don't know if I got it in me, but we shall see. Now I was gonna rock the butters, but I didn't want to choke him up too tight and disrespect New York like that. It's my mom's. The love of my life. She passed away January 5th. Medea, this is for you. Here we go. Smile down on me from heaven, mama. Here we go. Be with me on this, Medea. I don't know if I got it in me.
0: Here we go. Here we go.
1: That's for you, Medea. All right, first of all, I I was confused by the by the, the Timberlands and the New York. Was that a Joel, you were saying that this was some sort of uh NBA dunk contest reference?
2: Yeah, for those of you who watched the NBA All-Star Dunk Contest on Saturday, it was referencing uh Cole Anthony, who uh, led off the dunk contest by seawalking and putting on a pair of Timberlands and his dad, Greg Anthony's Knicks jersey, in an attempt to get a, you know, to, to get started, the get contest started and i mean he was about as successful as dunking as greg anthony would be uh today himself uh it was i mean and there have been some really terrible dunk contests this is one of the worst of all time that happened over the weekend and just to give you a, a sense of that there were probably maybe 50 total dunks let's just say that and about 44 of them seem to have gotten missed but even given that Cole Anthony was the worst contestant in one of the worst dunk contests I've ever seen. So it was kind of a diss of Cole Anthony. So,
1: but but Marcus, let's bring it back to Marcus Johnson, though. He makes his dunk, in case you weren't yep, sure yep, from the clip. Yep. Um, 66, pretty impressive. He only in, in his Flusted. NBA career, he's list he was listed at six seven. He's probably lost an inch yeah, or two.
2: Not a 6'10 guy. You know, it's more impressive when you think of, man, so we, and we were talking about this offline. I, and, cause I did not realize until many years later that he was Raymond and white man can't jump. Because we didn't have the internet like that then. So there was no way to know. But yeah, like he, 30 years ago and white man can't jump, he was the guy that played Raymond. I think we have a clip of that nah, too. Nah, nah, fuck this. Both you motherfuckers are crazy.
0: I'm going to my car. Get my other gun. Shoot everybody's ass. <laughs>
4: Raymond! Raymond! Raymond!
2: He did go get his gun. He didn't shoot everybody's ass in the
1: move. Well, happy birthday, Marcus Johnson. Congratulations on another dunk. Though I think he was setting us up in that clip by pretending that he
0: might not dunk. Anyway, Josh, what's your Marcus Johnson? So Ben Simmons has yet to suit up for his new team, the Brooklyn Nets. But he did face the media at a press conference a week ago. And at that presser, he was asked naturally about why he wanted out of philadelphia and about the statements that he's made or mostly that his representatives have made about his mental health
3: what was the straw that basically snapped that made you say it's time to go
0: um i don't think it was really that It was more so just a it was just piled up a bunch of things that have gone over the years to where i just knew i wasn't myself and i need to get back in, into that place of you know being myself and, and being happy as a person um, and taking care of my well-being um and that was like the, that was the major thing for me um it wasn't about the basketball it wasn't about the money anything like that um you know i want to be who i am and, and get back to you know playing basketball at that level and you know being myself so, Simmons didn't get into much more detail about um, his mental health, about his thought process, which is his prerogative, but I think in part because of that press conference and um, in part just because of how the conversation has shifted, people are talking about him differently. And you guys, Joel and Stefan, were ahead of a lot of other folks on this, saying on our show a couple of weeks ago that we should take him at his word when he talks about his struggles and not question, as I did whether it's a self-serving narrative. And I have thought about it more, and I think you guys were right, and I was wrong. It's not because I've looked at the fact pattern and I've assessed all of the quotes and all of these stories where Ben Simmons or his representatives have said something. It's not like I've looked back at the playoff games and looked back at the media coverage and thought about um, you know whether we were too harsh on Ben Simmons not shooting free throws and whether the media was too mean to him. I think it's a lot simpler than that. And I think it's a lesson that I'll try to keep in mind going forward, which is that we have no idea what the truth is and that it's better as I'm, I'm not trying to get too like, you know, high and mighty and on a, a soapbox here. But I think just in general in life, it's better to take people at their word than not. And I don't think it's any more complicated than that. And especially when um, we're talking about mental health, when there are people who um, can look a certain way and you're like oh that person looks depressed and people look as uh, another way and you're like that person doesn't look depressed which is obviously bullshit like we have no idea what's going on with anybody else in our lives um except maybe the people that we're closest to and maybe not even them and so to try to psychoanalyze someone to look at the pattern of you know him saying that uh he was mad that uh, the Sixers people wouldn't come and visit him in LA when they tried to come and visit him. And to think that that, um, you know, creates some sort of I- idea of, you know, who he is and what he meant and how we should feel about him. It's, it's all obviously ridiculous. And Let's just imagine a universe in which Ben Simmons is making the whole thing up, and which was this was all a, a self serving narrative because he wanted to get traded, and so he's you know pretending to have some mental health issue because that has some social currency today. I'm not, I'm obviously not saying that's true, but let's imagine that it is true. What damage does it do to just take him at his word? It's not about Ben Simmons, it's about what you're saying to people out there who are actually. Struggling, if Ben Simmons might be struggling. But there, what we do know is that there are millions of people out in the world who are. And just saying, I don't believe this guy will send a message to other people like, okay, well, why would anyone believe me if the people don't believe this guy? And so I think it's just important, especially in the context of mental health, um, and especially in a really high profile case, no matter if he's showing what we might think are the obvious signs, not showing what we might think are the obvious signs. It just seems like the right thing to do to uh, say about Ben Simmons. If he says that he's been having these struggles, if he says that they didn't have anything to do with his trade request, then what harm does it do to say, all right, if that's what you say, we should take you seriously and, like, hope that Everything in, in your life is going to get better. And maybe it will have something to do with this new environment in basketball. Maybe it won't. Um, and so that's my mea culpa, Joel and Stefan. And, uh, I think you guys, uh, had it right and I had it wrong. But the th- a thing that, um, that did come up that I think is actually like slightly more complicated is that like there are gotchas being thrown out people like Mina Kimes and Dan Labatard who are now saying as, I should have said, and I hopefully I'm saying now, like, we need to treat Ben Simmons with respect who were making fun of him during the playoffs because of how poorly he was shooting free throws and his seeming unwillingness to, you know, want to have the ball during the playoffs. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on whether people were too harsh on Ben Simmons? during those playoffs and uh, kind of before he said, I'm really struggling. Like, were there mistakes made there, or is this just an attempt at, like, a a gotcha that doesn't quite land?
1: Wasn't part of the reaction to his performance in the playoffs fed by the way that his teammates and the coaching staff responded to him? He didn't get a lot of support um, locally, like, in his own profession for the way he played and that's just gonna ignite fans every time
2: right i think maybe with the defining moment is him passing up that dunk at the end um of i can't remember if it was game six or game seven um but missing it, what should have been a sheer dunk opportunity to pass for Leia. Mm-hmm. and yeah that sort of catalyzed all the uh, you know the anger or the, the the conversation around him and yeah i don't you know i that's a really tough one man because I get as a Sixers fan how that could be really frustrating. You like you're watching somebody like this there's not really a lot of place for vulnerability on in the middle of competition
0: and basketball um, players and, missing free throws Joel I mean like Shaq I mean that's like a thing that it, it's a thing that fans Nick Anderson. Yeah, I mean it's a it, it's a little bit like what we were saying before about you know relating to golfers or whatever. Like it's one of the the rare things in sports where somebody who's a billion times better than us can do something worse than somebody who's not even a good athlete. And so it's it's a thing that, whether in big situations like the Nick Anderson thing or in more small-timey regular season moments where Shaquille O'Neal gets fouled repeatedly because he can't shoot, it's just like a thing that, you know, we make fun of as sports fans. Like, man, that guy is just, like, shooting bricks or shooting an airball on a free throw is, like, the most mockable thing. And it seems within the realm of kind of, like, acceptable behavior of sports fandom and there are a lot of athletes you know Shaq makes light of his own badness at the free throw line and different people are going to react to it differently but again like I don't want to kind of overstep here and say like Ben Simmons was struggling because people were making fun of him shooting free throws like maybe it doesn't have anything to do with that
2: yeah no I mean I think you had it right Josh like we don't we just don't know right um and where any of this comes from and it's just like we're not we really don't have the the language or the experience to understand how to deal with people like this like we've always we've made fun of people so long for having mental breakdowns um in sports in particular that like we're not we're still sort of struggling to adjust to this new world and yeah man i don't i'm not really adding anything to this but i do think that's very generous and kind of you um to say that um uh, about ben and like rethinking this cuz i mean again i i get why people feel this way like i have a lot of friends that like you, that or, or you would used to feel that, you know, he's being babied and all this other stuff. But um I just think that if we offer a little bit more empathy in these situations, that when it's our turn, that maybe we'll be the, we'll, you know, we'll be the recipients of the empathy we'd like to, that we, we should have modeled to other people.
1: I mean, ultimately, it comes down to the reality that fans don't treat professional athletes or any athletes as people. They treat them as... Performers and who are open to criticism, ridicule, praise as fits the situation.
0: That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to Past Shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to Slate.com slash hang up and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening.